Hey everyone, you're listening to the 107 podcast where we get together every fortnight and sometimes more often to talk about technology, business, and the humans in it. I'm your host, Ivan Stegic. My returning guest today is Gareth van Onseland. Gareth is a South African journalist, political analyst, and author, and I spoke to him at the end of 2019 in what we published as episode 78 of the podcast. We covered a great deal of ground in explaining South African politics at the time, and we touched on some of the parallels between it and U.S. politics. Today, I'd like to focus our discussion on U.S. politics and try to understand it in a more global context. We're recording this before Election Day itself. So, hello, future. What's it like there? Who won? I have so many questions. Welcome, Gareth. It's lovely speaking with you again. Hi, thanks very much for having me. I never thought I'd get a second shot at this, so I'm, I'm grateful to be back. It's just so nice to hear your voice, and I'm glad we can talk about something that's maybe a little closer to this side of the pond as opposed to that side of the pond. Yes, yes. It's, well, uh, you know, U.S. politics is, a, is almost local everywhere because everyone I know is interested in it to <laughs> one degree or another, so let's, let's go at it. Before we delve into that, I want to ask how South Africa is doing right now, um, especially with a pandemic going around. I, I was reading an article on the BBC. They said that death rates are seven times lower than the UK, and that even though it was like feared that the system would be overwhelmed, it seems like cases are flat and that's not going on. What, what's kind of the current status in the SA? So well, South Africa's... Uh, interesting case study on that front. Look, I mean, I suspect every country in the world could write a book about their particular experience under COVID, you know, and, and I could talk for several hours about South Africa's. But in a nutshell, we were very quick to move to a lockdown, quite a severe lockdown, early on when, when the virus began to spread. And I think that proved very effective and was probably the right thing to do for the first couple of months. But I think our government hung on to that lockdown too long. And given our economic situation, which is dire with, you know, huge unemployment and a lot of the private sector on a knife edge because we're, we're just really battling economically, I think COVID kind of pushed a lot of people, a lot of businesses over the edge and has had a, a devastating effect on the economy. And, you know, hindsight is twenty twenty vision, but I think the long and the short of it is things are worse now because we, we hung on to the lockdown a bit too long. Really? Even though death rates are down, the economy has been decimated, I guess. Yeah, well, it never, I mean, as far as death rates go and, um, you know, the impact of, of the disease in terms of caseload and number of people in hospitals on ventilators and that kind of thing, it never really manifested here to to the same degree it did in places like Italy where it, it went off the scale. In part, that can be contributed, I think, to an early and, and very speedy response. But I think we just didn't get struck as hard as the rest of the world, to be frank, um, which is a good thing. And I'm sure there'll be some version of a second wave, but almost negligible in terms of deaths, which, yeah, is encouraging. That is encouraging. Uh, I'm sorry for the economic uh, effects. Of course, we're battling it in the U.S. as well, and as so many are other economies across the globe are as well. Yes. Well, I mean, 
it's this thing has had a devastating effect everywhere. But you know, South Africa was on an on a knife edge going into COVID, and and it's really done some acute and serious, and and I suspect long lasting damage, which is sad. And the the test is now going to be how well the country can emerge from that and and come up with some solutions that actually have an impact. And it's not just the economy and having issues with it before going into the pandemic. You've been battling corruption, as we talked about in the last podcast as well. Um, But that seems to be sort of moving the needle a little bit. I, I read that there was some more enforcement lately and that there's been some good moves towards at least starting to police um, the corruption that's been going on? Yeah, corruption is, in one sense, I mean, I would imagine certainly for an international audience a kind of a red herring because, look, there's no getting around the fact that it is a profound problem and, and we have corruption on a grand scale here that has cost the country many billions of rands. But the fundamental problem with you know the economic edifice is the, the wrong kind of policies. There's just no attempt and a, and a kind of permanent hostility to opening up the economy and, and you know, getting some the power of the free market behind South Africa's growth and, and its economic trajectory. And corruption certainly, you know, holds back any prospect of economic growth. But I, I would say the primary problem is, is a policy problem, and that's really what needs to, to change. Well, speaking of corruption, we've we've definitely seen that in the United States with some of the reporting that we've seen and the nepotism that we've seen in South Africa is kind of the same thing that we have going on in the U.S. here. I, I know you don't speak for the whole world and maybe not even for the whole of South Africa, but can you can you articulate what it's like to be on the outside of the U.S. political system and what you're seeing with current events in the U.S., with the pandemic, with the misinformation that's happening, with you know ig- ignoring the science behind the spread of the pandemic, what what does it look like from your perspective? Well, I think there's quite a complex answer to that question, and it, and it depends who you're talking to. So, someone like myself, who's who's quite well versed in politics and takes a serious interest in in global politics and and reads quite a lot. You are presented in South Africa primarily with the the main headlines in the forms of you know international news agencies like CNN and BBC and that kind of thing. And the kind of stuff that makes international news headlines is usually the most controversial or uh, the most outlandish, and certainly when Trump is on the table, you know the most likely to provoke some kind of outrage. So you kind of get a very base level sense that there's a huge problem in the U.S. with a very difficult personality at the center of it. But if you do read more carefully, like I do, and you have a bit more interest in politics, the the problems I think are exacerbated the deeper you go. Um, I mean, if you if you watch briefings by Anthony Fauci or um, read up on you know comparative responses in other countries, it it does seem that the central administration in America um, really tried to ride roughshod over a, a very complicated problem, which required you know nuance and a lot of complex decision making and reason and patience and a huge emphasis on explaining your actions to the public. Uh, and it seems to have failed on all these counts, and, and as a result, 
seems to have lost the faith of, of the public in whatever actions it took, whether at state level there were good actions or at national level there were bad actions, there kind of seems to be a hostility to the way in which public representatives explain themselves um, or the kind of programs of action they take to address the problem. I think the consequence of, if you look a little deeper into, you know, from an international perspective and you read a bit deeper than just the main kind of headlines that define the way in which corona in America has been portrayed, you get a sense that there is a big disjuncture between the kind of policies that people have rolled out at national and state level and the degree to which those decisions are trusted and understood by the public. Given that you are reading a whole lot deeper into it and that you're watching the briefings and and doing the comparative analysis, do you see any precedent for this kind of response having happened either in other countries now for this pandemic or in the past? And what could we potentially learn from that? By, by precedent, do you mean has there been a similar kind of emergency that you can compare America's response to today? Yes, yes, I think so. Look, not offhand, I mean, I'm sure there is. I'd, I'd have to think, think carefully as to, as to what that is. I, I mean, the natural point of comparison, of course, is, is other countries. And, you know, there, there are upsides and downsides to the American response. Um, the one is this, this kind of constant tension between uh, science and politics, between Trump and his advisors, essentially, at national level. But on the other hand, if we compare what happened in America to South Africa, you know, our president, President Soro Ramaphosa, would address the nation every three or four weeks, and he would do that via the national broadcaster. There were no journalist presidents. He never took any questions. Um, none of his decisions or the decisions of the National Command Council, which were effectively determining what South Africa's response were, were ever in any serious way put, put before the fourth estate. And, you know, one of the upsides of America, however bad a condition it is, is that it has a very lively fourth estate that is able to critically interrogate these decisions and, you know, put questions to the president. So <laughs> you kind of have both sides of the coin there, sort of disregard for evidence and reason, but at the same time, a lot of scrutiny and critical debate about those decisions. I guess I don't know that it matters because there are there are almost like there are two realities here in the United States, right? There's this camp, this group of people that choose to believe what they want to believe. And then there's this group that chooses to believe the data and the facts and tries to make rational decisions based on evidence. And it almost feels like anything that the administration says is going to be accepted by one of the groups and debunked by the other group, and neither of the groups cares what the other group really thinks. Yes, I think that's, that's absolutely right. The U.S. is deeply and fundamentally divided, and, and it plays out exactly in the way you've said. And the problem is exacerbated further by the nature of the pandemic, which was this very complex, ambiguous, so far as policy goes, emergency. And, and to this day, you know, even if you just look at what experts and scientists have to say and what reason and data and evidence has to say, there's still a lot of argument as to what the right solution was. People don't necessarily know yet. I mean, there's a big debate about whether Sweden got it right, you know, with no lockdown. 
um, or whether those countries that went into lockdown got it right. There's a lot of post-factor information which is difficult to you know, judge to what degree it was right or wrong because the point of lockdown is to stop the caseload growing and once you've stopped it, you can never know what it would have been. So you can't really prove your case, which makes it difficult for people who implement a lockdown to say that it was the right decision. Right. And you have experts on both sides that are equally divided, some of whom are partisan and, and not necessarily being honest or truthful, but some who are very good on both sides and, and can make very powerful cases. And uh, I think the brutal truth is that we're only going to know 100% what the right response was in five or 10 years' time. I think that the point you make is is absolutely right. I think that there are two realities in America. Look, that, that's not particular to America. There are a lot of countries where where that applies, um, but uh, it's a particularly acute problem in the, in America at the moment, and it's not just political, or at least the political infects every element of society. So you see this kind of division playing itself out amongst scientists and amongst thought leaders. And it can be very divisive. Some of these people can take a position simply because it's a partisan position and it serves some political agenda. But a lot of scientists on both sides of the divide can make very strong cases. So the problem is exacerbated by the fact that COVID is this very complicated crisis that doesn't necessarily have a clear-cut solution. Um, We don't know which way... uh, Things are going to go. We don't know which solution, in retrospect, was the best solution. And it's a very confusing environment uh, to then introduce to a a political atmosphere that is highly divided and and binary. Um, And it it just exacerbates all those fault lines that exist already. I think the most frustrating thing to me as someone who is, I think, a scientist at heart and who likes data and evidence is that... Even though there are nuances to how scientists um, interpret the spread of the virus and what might be the best case, the best way to deal with it, there are still some very simple fundamental things that aren't negotiable. We know the virus spreads through coughing and through the air and through sneezing. And it's a very simple thing to wear a mask and to socially distance, I think there's evidence to show that that improves. But yet there is this focus on fundamental uh, civil liberties that simply should be ignored when there is a pandemic in place. And I think that's the frustrating part for me. And And I don't have any context as to whether or not that happens that this divide exists elsewhere as well. Yeah, well, I mean, the thing about the mask or or those people who deny that masks do anything, the thing that's interesting about them is, so so let's accept for the sake of argument that that masks don't do anything and it's all a giant mistake and and it was a waste of people's time to wear masks. In terms of them actually preventing the disease disease, spreading. Let's say that's the argument and let's say we agree with it. Well, would there be any benefit to a mask outside of that? And I think there are behavioral benefits that are that are indisputable. I mean, for one, it, tops, it stops you touching your nose and your face because there is a barrier there. Secondly, it makes you aware that there is a problem and you need to distance yourself from other people. Otherwise, why would you have this barrier over your mouth? Um, and those are quite profound impacts on the way people behave. So 
you know, even if this thing had no material benefits, and, and I believe that it does, you know, it literally is a physical barrier, so it must to some degree or other stop something passing between two people. It has behavioral benefits, which are very important in a pandemic, uh, and that signal to people internally that there is a problem, that I need to be aware of how close I am to another person, about touching myself, uh, you know, it, it regulates behavior and, and has a whole lot of benefits in that regard. That's a good point. Uh, it, it's not just that it might help you avoid spreading the virus or getting the virus. It's that there are other benefits to it as well. Yeah, I, I I'm just still flummoxed and flabbergasted that there um, is no shared reality here, no shared acceptance. And I think that's the greatest problem that we're going to face. Should there be a change in the administration? And even if there isn't a change in the administration, there is no shared reality. And I like, I don't know what we can do to get there. I'm open to hearing what you think. The, the thing about shared realities, you have to be a bit careful with them because, I mean, I think they've always been, you can use the word two realities or two interpretations of, of what's best for America in, in broad terms, you know, a kind of Republican and democratic worldview. I mean, I think even those two worldviews have, have fractured somewhat over the last uh, five or ten years or so. But in broad terms, it's a kind of universal truth that for you know a very long period of time, there have been these two dominant worldviews in America. I think the problem in the current environment is the degree to which people have hunkered down in each worldview. They've become far more fundamental and it's illustrated by the degree to which I think the left has become quite hysterical at the extremes and the right, you know, from the Tea Party through to Trump through to whatever has, has become quite extreme on, on, on its far side. And both of these factions are having a powerful influence on the worldviews of, of the broader democratic and republican views. There doesn't seem to be a moderate center anymore. I mean, you know, a president like Roosevelt was, it was very hard to distinguish him as a Republican. He, he could have been a Democrat. He had a, you know, a very moderate, centrist view. Um, and uh, that kind of president is not really possible in America at the moment. Um, you've got to belong to one camp or the other, and your views have got to be fairly extremely aligned with that camp. And, and I think that is the problem, is that the kind of middle ground, not middle in, in neutral, just a, a kind of area where moderate Democrats and moderate Republicans could meet has, has been eradicated, and it's just far more fundamental on both sides now. I'm glad you brought up FDR. I mean, you, you could not recognize him as a Republican in the 30s compared to what Republicans are today. And if, if I understand American history, which I never really studied in South Africa growing up, as you well know, but, I mean, he was the originator of the, the New Deal, and that's when everything kind of started to to change. And I'm reminded of that because of what we have with the Supreme Court justice being heard right now with all the arguments that are happening right now with um, her hearings. She calls herself an originalist, which I, I understand, as I understand it, it's what the Constitution was set out to be back when it was written. And that's what should be interpreted as applicable to what we have in society now. I look at that and I think about it and I'm like, wow, 
can't we make some changes to the way we think and the way that that's applied? And I look at how South Africa's constitution was written in a modern age from a very, from from scratch, really, and looking at the lessons that have been learned by other democracies and how that compares to the constitution in the United States. And I wonder if the U.S. is at a disadvantage because there are people who refuse to apply the Constitution to modern day. And I wonder if South Africa isn't fundamentally at more of an advantage over the U.S. because of the way the Constitution was written there. That's a very (laughs) complicated question. (laughs) Sorry. No problem. I mean, one of the differences between South Africa and the U.S. is that our Supreme well, the equivalent of our Supreme Court judges, our constitutional court judges, are, are not appointed for life. Uh, I think they serve 11-year terms. Oh, I stand to be corrected. I'm not sure. So that does mean that you get a bit more fluidity in you know, the top bench. Um, it's not necessarily set in stone for long periods of time in the way that the Supreme Court is, which is probably a healthy thing. There are downsides to it. It, it is does mean that it can be, well, I mean, this kind of point is irrelevant in South Africa because the ANC has been in government for 25 years, and so it's it's had a very powerful influence in, in forming the judiciary. But yes, there could be some more political power in, in determining the nature of the constitutional court. The, as far as the sort of originalists versus what we would call in South Africa transformationalists, I guess, in other words, people who believe the constitution is a living document and, and should be changed on a you know so that it aligns with South Africa's needs and and challenges I think the constitutional court it, it's very hard to say which way that that falls there there are a number of areas in which it's very rigid and and it won't amend or interpret the constitution any other way than the way in which it is written and there are some areas where it, it has been open to change or at least interpretations that are not necessarily exactly what's written on paper. So and that's the consequence, I think, of being a young democracy. I think, you know, the idea of being an originalist or, or interpreting the Constitution as it was first intended is, is something that will only arise when your Constitution is 200 years old and, and when, or 400 years old, and we're not quite there yet. I'm wondering how... South Africa will look 200 years from now and how that'll compare to where the United States is right now. And it, it's, it's so hard to tell and be able to predict that. And I guess we have to be able to change the constitution and change the way we govern ourselves so that it's more applicable and not be an originalist. That's my philosophy, I think, and position no, that's that's fair enough. I mean, yeah, I, I personally I probably in total agree with you on that front. I, I think it is bizarre to approach society, you know, as a kind of replica of a society that existed 400 years ago. It's just palpably not practical or applicable to to the way the world is today. I'm looking forward to the election. I'm sure you will be watching the results come out just as much as we do. And I know there is a lot of risk of there not being a result on the day of the election and it it 
going into litigation and perhaps to the Supreme Court. I mean, everybody is talking about that as a potential outcome. And as I mentioned right at the top of the podcast, uh, you're listening to this after that's all already, already happened. So I, I'm curious to know what that is. I'm interested in what your thoughts are around the actual election process itself and how people vote and absentee ballots and mail-in ballots um, and early voting and so on. What does it look like in South Africa? I remember when, when I saw the first election, there were long lines of people waiting on the day of the election to get in to vote. Has that evolved over the last 25 years? What, what does our early voting process in the United States look like compared to the essay, uh, to the voting process you've experienced? So, I mean, there's a very interesting process unfolding in South Africa at the moment. The, the Constitutional Court has ruled that our electoral system as it stands is insufficient in that it doesn't make room for independent candidates. In other words, before this ruling, the only way that you could be elected to mm. parliament or to a provincial legislature was on a party ticket. And they've passed this judgment saying that independent candidates should be allowed to stand and that our electoral system needs to be reformed to incorporate that. Now, that has a series of profound consequences for the way our whole electoral system is structured and, and all political parties are currently scrambling to try and wrap their head around what the best way is to, to reorganize it. One of the big ways that it has an impact or, or has a potential impact is is the degree to which it affects direct representation. I mean, we've largely worked on a proportional mm -hmm. representation um, ballot at national level, which means our democracy lacks a lot of the benefits of, of direct elections. Uh, and it's one of the reasons I think that you know corruption has been allowed to uh, grow out of control in the way it has is because people aren't responsible, aren't responsive to directly to a community. So, I mean, I don't know what the answer to, to that's going to be that Parliament's going to come up with, but I think it is a healthy development and you are going to see more direct democracy. You compare the stuff to the US, I mean, I, the, the US, to be, I mean, my blunt opinion mm -hmm. is that it is just antiquated. It's an antiquated system. It's fundamentally wrong to be able to win more votes for the presidency and and not be elected president. That just doesn't make sense to me. Totally agree. And, you know, the delegates uh, as substitutes for votes just doesn't work for me either. Uh, I don't know if that problem's ever resolvable. There's so many entrenched interests in that system that it seems to me that there's no way in which electoral reform can happen in the U.S. in the immediate future. Um, something needs to break for for people to for it to become a big enough issue for people to be able to do that and and uh, yeah I just don't see that happening in the near future and, and it's a profound problem um, and I don't know what the solution is and it, it just doesn't work it just doesn't feel like a proper democracy to me I agree it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like a real democracy because. Every single office in the in complete um, uh, in the whole system, except the presidential office, is a proportional uh, representation of one person's vote. I think there needs to be a landslide victory on one side of the electoral of one side of the election 
for there to be any real electoral change and in, in, in the process at least so if if there's a landslide win on the from the democratic party in the election and there is both the house and the senate and the presidency like there will there will be all kinds of sweeping changes in my opinion like they would that'll be a significant signal that change is needed and like that in my opinion that's the only way that kind of change can happen you, you really you think if the democrats sweep they'll 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 institute a whole lot of electoral reform uh, i would love to see them do that yes i don't know if they will <laughs> be able i mean <laughs> you think it's unlikely I yeah, I don't think that's going to happen. What do you think the first thing will be that um, the Democrats do if there's a landslide victory? I'm not sure. I'm not that well-versed to be able to say that. But I, I will say, I mean, I think as far as Biden goes, the, the, if he's elected, the first thing he'll do is set about repairing the damage done to institutions. The people appointed, the undermining of certain key institutions, the 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 merit of, of, you know, boards and executives and senior management at key institutions. I, I mean, I can't see anything else being at the top of his agenda but that. I mean, it's absolutely essential to democracy that its core institutions function properly, and, and I'm sure that'll be at the top of his agenda. And probably a response to the, a changing a response to the pandemic as well, some sort of federal mandates that institute some scientific evidence-based principles that um, states need to follow like i would guess that would be something else i mean in, in the big picture in, in a you know four-year term i think the pandemic's not gonna it's another six months or so so I, I mean i'm sure he'll try to see it out so to speak with you know some authority and and reverence before science and reason and evidence but in terms of what the real policy battles are long term and i mean he'll want you know or the Democrats will certainly want eight years, I think his focus is going to be elsewhere. I mean, I think COVID will be more of a metaphor, in other words, for, for what his presidency is going to deliver than an actual significant factor in the next four years. Yeah, nobody's really talking about electoral reform, and I, I, maybe that's why I'm not surprised that that would not be something you would choose to be at the top of the agenda in a new administration. No. But it feels like that's been broken for a long time, and the last election kind of showed that it's fundamentally broken. Well, it's, it's a vicious circle because, you know, any administration that's elected to power on the existing electoral system is obviously quite happy with what that system <laughs> delivered. <laughs> so there's no that's incentive right. to change the system. You know whether they're Republicans or Democrats, and no one who's actually has the ability to change the system would ever propose to do it. That's very true, and I think money's a problem as well. Dark money and how um, fundraising happens, like I like that would be awesome to see change as well. How does that work in South Africa? Are there limits on money? Can you raise money if you're a political figure? What's it like there? Well. I mean, one of the things that is exciting about South Africa for, for all its problems is this, the extent to which it is developing as a constitutional democracy. And, and I mean, I pointed earlier to this, these changes to the electoral system, um, but the same kind of thing is happening on the fundraising front. And uh, there have been quite, seri quite a serious judgment, for, again, from the Constitutional Court um, requiring some profound changes to the way in which 
parties fundraise and transparency with regards to fundraising. Um, all parties are required to now make public all donations. I, I can't remember what the amount is, but it's a very small threshold above that threshold. Um, and it, it's going to cause chaos for a lot of parties, including the ANC, which have relied on on what you call dark money for a, a long period of time. You know, I think the ANC is fundamentally corrupt on a profound level. And so when you're that enmeshed in dark money and unethical money, you make a plan to get around whatever the regulations are. So whether or not it'll stop that um, remains to be seen, but I think it'll have a profound impact on the degree to which that does, you know, certainly impact on the ANC. The, the ANC at the moment is struggling to pay. It's been late in paying its staff members, I think, two out of the last four months hasn't paid salaries on time and and that is a sign that its funding is being severely squeezed Mm. you know we we don't have super PACs and and things like that here um but just a lot of off the book donations i think which are impossible to track where do they come from Uh, or where is where are they suspected to come from are they from other countries or from rich people in south africa what what are the possible sources the the name we have for much corruption in South Africa is called ten tendeniership or tentropeniership or whatever I can't say it properly. But basically, the manipulation of tenders for for private gain. And what happens is you get a tender from the state, and you, and you get that tender because you have a connection in the state or the public service, and it's awarded to you. You know, you shouldn't be rewarded that awarded that a tender, and you get it anyway. And then, as compensation for getting the tender, you make a donation to the ANC. I see. So it's kind of a vicious circle where the the state is funding, you know, sections of the private sector, and the private sector returns the favour by giving a percentage back to the ruling party. Got it. So they, it's the classic kickback mob approach, right? You control the the work, you choose who works, you put it out in the open, and it's kind of a fake process, and then. That person gets the the request. Uh, here it's called, I think, an RFP, a request for proposal. That would be the equivalent of the tender. And then once you get the tender, that money basically flushes back into the ruling party. Correct. And and then you rig every part of the tender process. So you charge. Where, I mean, one of the problems with COVID is is it's been revealed, and and this was a tipping point to a large degree in the public's appetite for this kind of thing, which is why you're reading stories on the BBC, as you intimated earlier, about a clampdown on corruption was a huge amount of the relief funds made available to the public in response to COVID were manipulated and stolen through fraudulent tenders for PPE, you know, protective equipment and that kind of thing. Mm. Um, And it's just, it was the straw that broke the camel's back. There was huge outrage and even the ANC had to... (laughs) take action against it but it, it followed exactly that formula you know there were masks being sold back to the state at some hugely 300 percent inflated cost for what they actually cost and it's just outrageous stuff that is outrageous um one last thing i wanted to ask you about was also related to the elect uh, the process of actually voting and one of the things i've often thought is that voting machines are a great problem Right, they are black boxes controlled by private companies and corporations in the United States whose software we have no idea how it functions. 
wouldn't it be great if we had an open source voting machine that everyone could examine and use and be able to validate and audit? I think that would increase the confidence, right, in the voting process, at least in the United States. Do these companies have a presence in South Africa? What, what does the voting, vote counting and the vote process look like in South Africa? No, it's, it's entirely manual here. Uh, I mean, the idea of electronic voting has been mooted in South Africa a couple of times, but it, it really is shut down very quickly and there's very little appetite for it. I don't think it's possible technologically, logistically, financially, and geographically. I mean, we have huge, vast, very difficult to reach rural areas in South Africa. Yeah, I mean, there are a whole lot of obstacles to it, but distrust also in technology is a big factor. So, uh, you know, the way ballots are counted is, is almost entirely manually done here. I feel like that's actually good. I have to be honest. I like... That actually sounds confidence-building. Yeah, and, well, it has a lot of advantages, and political parties are, I mean, it, you know, every party gets to have a representative in the count room, an independent representative of their, well, not independent, a party representative, but independent from the IEC, the Electoral Commission, who can be in the room to validate the vote count at every level. So as the vote count happens at a local voting station, there are people at provincial and national level, there's a presence at the IEC centre at Pretoria, which is where all the votes come in from every political party, and, and you get to each party gets to validate every step of the way. So they are enmeshed in the process, and their own credibility is on the line for with regards to a lot of the vote counts. So it works well to bind political parties to the legitimacy of the process. Yes. And what kind of voter turnout does South Africa have typically? Well, we had a very, I mean, the thing with democracies is voter turnout inevitably, no matter how wonderful your democracy and how great participation is, drops over time. So we started out with, I mean, what would be considered astronomical levels, sort of 70% or thereabouts, I think, in 1994. But it, it's systematically dropped since then. I can't remember what it was in the last election, but it's down by 20 or 30% now, I think into the low 50s. Oh, I, I, don't quote me on that. I, I can't remember exactly, but it has dropped significantly. And it's dropped even more profoundly in local government elections because we have, we have two sets of elections. So every five years we have national and provincial elections, and then immediately the year after we have local government elections. And turnout in national and provincial elections is almost always higher People care more profoundly about the national government selection and provincial governments, and then it falls off dramatically for local government elections, which is a real problem because, you know, that's where actual most most real politics happens on the ground, and it's 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 a far more directly representative system that we have at local government level. It's not perfect, but it's much better than national and provincial elections, and and participation rates are really low there, so that's that's a real problem. Maybe the introduction of an independent candidate without a national party affiliation will have an effect on that. Well, we'll see. I'd, I mean, it's, you know, South African politics is defined to a large degree by identity politics to be crude. People vote for political parties for a whole lot of complex reasons that often have little to do with 
what their actual policies are and more to do with the, the degree to which people have identified with those parties on, on both ends of the spectrum historically. So independent candidates are fighting a lot of very powerful forces that are much bigger than them. They might be able to make some impact at local government level in, in certain metros or key cities, and then I would say less and less impact as you move up the scale to provincial and national level. It's all so interesting. It affects us in so many different parts of life. I just really enjoy talking to you and talking politics. You don't get to do it enough with someone who's got such a similar background in growing up and yet such a different one in our adult lives. It's It's been great talking to you. And before we wrap up, I have one final question for you. Yes. Can you make a prediction for what's going to happen in the in the U.S. election? I work from nine to five in market research, doing polls and working on opinion research. So, I mean, as a market research quote unquote scientist, I have to go with what the polls say, and, and I think a ten point lead for Biden, which is sort of what the poll of polls is is put him at at the moment, is it will mean he'll win. And I know some of the polls were wrong, although they actually weren't that badly wrong on the national vote count um, in 2016. Um, but they did get things quite badly wrong at state level. And I understand that you know the delegate count means polls don't necessarily translate into a win. Um, but I think 10 points is, is really significant and it's going to be very difficult for Trump to turn that around. And yeah... I have to go with what the polls say at the moment, which is Biden. Uh, how about the House and the Senate? Any opinion there? Maybe you haven't looked at those uh, numbers yet. I I haven't looked at those closely. Um, I mean, I see that in a number of swing states, Biden is, is ahead or very close or close the gap. Um, I mean, it's quite possible for the Democrats to win those, but I, I just don't know the numbers well enough to be able to say. We'll see. It's been great talking to you, and I hope that there isn't a worse dumpster fire in our near future than we already have, and I hope that democracy shows up and that cooler heads prevail and that we can get through this uh, pandemic soon. Thank you for being with us. We'll, we'll talk soon again. Yes, indeed. Thank you very much for having me. Gareth Van Onselen is a South African journalist, political analyst, and author. He lives in South Africa, and you can find him on Twitter as G. Van Onselen. You've been listening to the 107 podcast. Find us online at 107.com slash podcast. And if you have a second, do send us a message. We love hearing from you. Our email address is podcast at 107.com. Until next time, this is Ivan Stegic. Thanks for listening.